Turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. I'm not wearing this t-shirt just to be casual. It's a teaching lesson. It says, love your neighbor. And in case you forgot who your neighbor was, it gives you a list. Muslims, atheists, homosexuals, so on and so forth. Which fits well with the passage we're talking about because the whole point of the law was to teach people how to love their neighbor. And laws are given because people don't love their neighbor on their own. And so God says, in case you don't know how to do it on your own, I'm going to tell you so you don't leave people out. It's always been the problem with laws and justice systems as they protect some people and not others. So in Exodus chapter 21, we are continuing in God's, uh, he's giving the law to the people of Israel as they start off as a new nation. He gave them the Ten Commandments, which summed up the entire law, and now he's unfolding that. So he says, uh, in this passage we're going to talk about violence. He says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. But he doesn't want them to miss anything. So he basically gives them a list of people that that applies to as a way to prevent them from overlooking uh, especially vulnerable people. So uh, Exodus chapter 21, and we'll read from verse 12 to 27, or 12 to 32. He who strikes a man, so this is God speaking to Moses, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die, but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks out about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beat his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall, not surely be, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Better translation there would probably be he is his money. Uh, there was no property slavery back then. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the hus- woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horns in time past, and it has been made known to its owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, The ox shall be stoned, and his owner also shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, 
According to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. A few controversial things in here. If you weren't here last week, uh, we'll touch briefly on the, on the concept of slavery here. But primarily, what we're talking about is violence. What does God think about violence? Violence is a huge problem. Eleven days ago, a man walked into the newspaper in Annapolis with a shotgun and killed five people. A couple months ago, a 17-year-old walked into a school with a shotgun and killed 10 people, eight of his fellow students, two teachers. Violence is everywhere. It affects every one of us. You look over your shoulder when you're out at night, what are you afraid of? Violence. If you're a woman, you don't go out at night by yourself, do you? <laughs> Violence is everywhere. You fear because other people are going to try to hurt you. God knows this, and so he says, here's what I think about violence. Now, violence is often glorified in our country, uh, sometimes at more of a base level, such as in movies or video games, but oftentimes in sort of a more noble way. Talk about defending yourself or fighting for your rights or your property. And it's... It's sort of a right for many people to use violence. Often gun laws are viewed in that sense of the right to use violence. What does God think? God intends to create a community that values life. But first, he must remove evil. First, by the law, but ultimately by the cross, the church, and the future kingdom. So what he does here is he says, I'm going to create a community community of Israel. And in the community of Israel, the new people of Israel, freed from slavery from Egypt, here's the kind of community I want. No violence. I want it to be a safe community. So God says, let me tell you what I mean by violence. Here's the kind of justice I want in response to violence. So we're going to look through uh, the justice of the law. And it's divided up here into three uh, categories, killing, assault, and negligence. Here's what God thinks about it. First of all, killing. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. It says, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. We call this premeditated murder. In other words, if someone tr plans to kill someone and then kills them, that's worse than if they kill them differently. Which is very interesting because God is saying your intentions matter. Not just what you did, but what you planned to do, what you wanted to do. Wanting to kill someone and killing them is a death penalty. Down in verse uh, 14, yeah, so verse 12 and verse 14 say, this is the kind of killing that deserves death. Planned murder, treachery. You set out to kill them. Mal the, our law says malice aforethought. This is why often in the Ten Commandments it says, uh, some translation says, thou shalt not murder. You shall not murder. And by murder, we understand premeditated killing. I don't like that translation because it limits it only to premeditated killing. But in God's society, planning to kill someone is wrong. Amen. And I think everyone kind of knows that. Pretty much any law in the world understands that premeditated murder is, is wrong. 
and it deserves a death penalty in this concept. But also, intentional but unplanned killing. What about that? Self-defense. You get into a fight. Fight escalates. You kill him. Verse 13. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I'll appoint for you a place where he may flee. Those would be called the cities of refuge. But basically, they were a place to say, I didn't, it was to give you a chance to defend yourself, to explain what happened, to say, I didn't see the person when I was driving my ox cart and ran over him. Or he attacked me and I killed him in self-defense. It wasn't intentional. I didn't mean to kill him, even though I did. I wasn't planning on killing them. So God says, it's difficult sometimes to figure that out. So you'll go to a place and the judges will decide. And if it was innocent or if it was unintentional, you won't be killed. But if it was intentional, he says here, you shall take him from my altar. There's examples where they would go to the altar of God and they would cling onto the altar to beg for protection, religious protection. God says, if you're a murderer, they'll pull you off the altar and kill you. God does not protect murderers. There's no what's called altar sanctuary. So God says, if you kill someone because you plan to, you deserve to die. But if you didn't mean to, let the judges figure that out. You see the justice system there? These aren't harsh laws. They're fair. They're just. But what about when you didn't kill them? So we have a killing. That's simple. But what about assault? Most of the time, that's what happens in society is the assaults, the violence against persons. Now, what he does here is he immediately says in verse 15 something we wouldn't expect. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Slap your mom and now you're in the electric chair? Some of us would not be here. Well, first of all, let's understand what it means. When it says strike, it doesn't mean you slapped your mom or you punched your dad or you pushed him. The word strike is used in Genesis when it says when Cain was given the mark of protection, it says lest anyone strike him or kill him. So it doesn't mean something minor or, or accidental. It means a beating. So now in context, a child beats their parent so bad that he could be left for dead. What do you do with that child? Well, God says that's a death penalty. Because it breaks so many laws of, of God's of, of nature. You could have killed them. The violence and the corruption that would require you to beat your parent almost to death, that's bad. That destroys society. And so God says that's a death penalty. You cannot undermine a family that way. You can't break apart a family with that kind of violence. So against parents... But then he goes to verse 17, he says, He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Now, this is why we have to study in context and we have to spend some time understanding it because if you just read that, that sounds terrible. You curse your father and they kill you? That doesn't seem just, does it? But again, let's, let's understand the context. Judges were meant to look at this as principles. What does it mean to curse somebody? It does not mean say a curse word to them. That's not what this means. You don't get put to death for saying a curse word. We may think the Old Testament is harsh, but it's not that harsh. No, a curse is what? There were curses in the Bible. The first curse takes place in Genesis chapter 3. God curses man. He curses the earth. He 
cut himself off from the earth so that it started to die. So when it says here, curse, it means a child takes a formal oath to disown their parents, to repudiate them, to get rid of them. They say, uh, I wash my hands of you. Let God kill you. Remember what the Bible says in in previous chapter? Honor your father and mother. This is the direct opposite of honoring. This is saying, I'm done with you. Not just I don't want to be around you, but I curse you. I hope God kills you, and I'm certainly not going to help you. Jesus brings this up in the New Testament with the Pharisees who were supposed to be righteous. They were supposed to provide for their parents, but what did they say? The gift that I was going to give to to take care of my parents, I've designated to the Lord, so I can't give it to you. They cursed their parents. They said, I'm not going to take care of you. I'm done with you. You see how that's much a a bigger... Think of an old... So back then, they didn't have nursing homes. They didn't have structures. When you got old, who would take care of you? Your children would. When a child curses their parents, they get old by themselves. There's no one to take care of them. You see the selfishness and the corruption that that causes? Of leaving people to die alone? To say, I'm done with the parents that brought me into this world? Thanks for bringing me to this world. I hope God kills you now. So God says, if you do that, if you curse someone like that, father or mother, they should be put to death. Gives an assault against life. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or he is found in his hands, shall surely be put to death. You see how some things are worth death besides murder? God's explaining to us what the value of a human life is. When you kidnap someone, this is specifically talking about the slave trade, you're stealing their life. You're taking their life away from them. And God says, if you take their life away from them, take your life away from you. And again, if, we, when you, if you weren't here last week talking about slavery, this eradicates slavery as we know it. Every slave owner in America would have been killed. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Robert E. Lee, Jonathan Edwards, Thomas Jefferson, killed, stoned to death publicly. So American slavery would have ceased to exist if this had been followed, this sort of justice system. Because it's violence against the life. But then God says, what if you get into a fight? Men contend with each other. One strikes the other with a stone over his fist, but he does not die. Okay, so there's violence has taken place, an assault has taken place, a fist fight, pick up a rock, but the person doesn't die. Do they deserve to die? Now, in a what we call draconian system, you would want to have really harsh punishments to prevent evil. So they would say, just kill him. But God says, no, that's not how justice works. Justice is you strike a man. What does he say? He does not die, but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks outside with the staff, and this is a symbol to say he's okay, he made it. He didn't go into a coma. He doesn't have brain damage. He doesn't have a sort of permanent injuries. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. So you get into a fight. You break the guy's jaw. What are you supposed to do? You say, well, he can't work for two weeks, so you pay him two weeks' worth of work, and then you pay for all his doctor bills until he's fully healed. You, know, you don't get killed. <laughs> Someone said, just kill him. <laughs> we would call that in our system something like workman's compensation or restitution. See what God's saying here? 
You do violence against someone, you take something from them, you give it back in a fair and a just way. And it's nothing's more just than saying, everything I've taken from you, your time away from work, your, your physical ailments, I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to pay for it to be restored. And in verse 21, when he talks about beating a slave, we talked about this last week, uh, there was no punishment system, formal punishment system back then. And up until uh, within the past maybe 100 years, corporal punishment was normal. If you were on a boat and you disobeyed the captain, they would flog you. If you were back in the old days, they put you in stocks because it was their way of punishing. So when you had someone who worked for you and they stole something for, from you or they were negligent, you would administer corporal punishment. But you beat them too hard and you killed them. What happens? Life for life. Take your life. But what if you beat them so hard they didn't kill them? It says here, and this is a little confusing, uh, it, it says, notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he should not be punished, for he is his property. That doesn't sound just, does it? First of all, people are not property. And secondly, if you beat someone, you don't get punished. Put it in context. The word property there means money. So when you, so slavery worked back at this time, someone owed you money. So they came to work for you. Okay, whose money was being used? It was your money. If they didn't work, who lost money? You did. So if you beat your slave and they couldn't work, who's paying for that? You are. So what he's saying here is you're not going to be punished because you are being punished. Your property or your money that you invested in this person is being taken as they lay in bed recovering. So the judges said, we're not going to add anything extra. You already are paying for this. So it's not saying that you can just beat your slave and nothing happens. That's not what it's saying. In the context, it's saying if you hurt your investment, you're punishing yourself. And that uh, there were protections, and that's what it says in verse 26 and 27. If you strike out the eye of your servant or if you knock out a tooth, if you damage them in any way, they're done. They're free. All the money they owed you, six years' worth of wages, how much are you going to make in six years? They're done. You just paid that to them simply for giving them a scar, dislocating a joint. So violence is protected. Again, people are protected against violence at the level that the violence occurs. See what God is saying here? Proportional responses. A just system does not punish everything the same. Off with his head, right? Is that what the queen said? Anything that bad that happened, off with their head. Some people look at the Old Testament that way. It's not what's happening. But then God gets even a more complicated area, negligence. We think that if we didn't mean to do it, it's not our fault. What's God say? Verse 22, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, but it, so, notice that two men are fighting, how did the pregnant woman get there? It doesn't say, does it? Basically, any way she got there, maybe she was dumb and tried to insert herself into a fight between two men while she was pregnant. Why would she do that? Well, if you've ever responded to domestic, I'm sure some of you can talk about domestic abuse cases where two people are fighting, you insert yourself into it, the wife attacks the police officer. Maybe that's what happened. doesn't say. Maybe the husband was using her. It doesn't say. It just says that if it ever happens in any way, she gives birth prematurely, Yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished. But he didn't get into a fight with her. Why is he being punished? 
It's saying pregnant women, life, especially two lives in one, vulnerable life, has to be treated differently. The more vulnerable the life, the higher the consequences. So you get into a fight with a guy, and his wife comes out, and she's pregnant. What is this saying to do? If you accidentally knock her over and hurt her, you're guilty. Why? Because pregnant women are more vulnerable than anyone else in society because a baby in their belly is totally defenseless. So the, the level of responsibility is higher. It says, yet no harm follows. It should surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. That's who she was fighting. Or that's who he was fighting. He gets into a fight. Her, his, his fight with the husband. The husband's wife comes out. He knock, knocks her over. The husband's like, you got to pay for that. God is saying, you better pay attention when pregnant women are around because vulnerable life must be protected. The husband imposed on him. He should pay as the judges determined. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. It's not talking specifically about abortion here, but I think that's how it should be interpreted. You kill the woman, life for life. If she gives birth prematurely and harm follows, life for life. I think it's a safe interpretation to say that if, she, if you injure a pregnant woman and her baby dies, you die. Because that's life. To, to not interpret it that way, and, and if you read commentaries, they're going to say, well, it only talks about the woman. To say that in this culture that a, a birth, a pregnancy, think about the, the, the lineage that was carried on through children. To say there was no punishment for terminating someone's birth. That doesn't make any sense. That's where the line, that's where Christ would come from. So you think about in this big picture, what if that was Mary? And you got to a fight with Joseph and you killed Mary's baby. That's Jesus. Right? How do they know it's not? The Messiah would come through a Jewish woman. So it's protecting unborn life because unborn life is vulnerable and unborn life is life. So a life for a life. And then it says negligence with your animals. Now, back then, they didn't have cars. They didn't have houses like we do, so animals was an example for all. If an ox gores a man or woman to death, an ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner should be acquitted. Now, the owner is acquitted, but he still lost the ox, which is a severe punishment, and they didn't get to eat it either. So you lost the means of work, and you didn't get to eat the meat that would have cost I mean, how much does an ox cost nowadays? A full cow? Yeah, so they would have lost all of that because the animal did something wrong. You're responsible for your property. If your property hurts someone, you're responsible. But it, if you knew it was going to hurt somebody, it says, but if the ox tended to thrust with its horns in times past, it has been made known to its owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. I'll use a personal example. You have a dog. Your dog's great. It's great with kids, great with every. All of a sudden, one day, it kills somebody. What do you do? You kill your dog. But what happens if your dog bit a couple people before that? Then they killed somebody. The Bible's saying you are guilty of murder. You should be killed because your pet that you knew was dangerous or your livestock that you knew was dangerous, you didn't prevent it from hurting somebody, so you are guilty of that. That's 
stringent, isn't it? Well, unless you're the one that got killed and the owner could have prevented it. And it goes also for property in Deuteronomy 22. It says, if you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet or a wall for your roof that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. You could say, well, like, it's my house. They shouldn't have gone up there. No. You knew it was dangerous. You didn't prevent it. You're guilty. You take a few too many drinks, you get in a car and kill somebody, murder. Guilty. You have a house that's not built to code, someone dies because of it, your fault. You see what God is trying to do? He's trying to protect people. He's trying to say violence is wrong, and just because you didn't mean for someone to get hurt, if you could have prevented it and didn't, you're guilty of the violence. Now, we understand that in these situations, there's mitigating circumstances. Maybe the ox tended to thrust five years ago, but it hadn't recently. Are you still guilty? So he says here, if there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. In other words, the judges can say there's some mitigating circumstances. He can buy his life out. He can buy himself out of death penalty. God God does not want to hurt people. He wants to protect people. And he understands that maybe you weren't aware of the building codes when you wired your house and someone died. You still have to pay, but the judges can give you leniency. They can mitigate the circumstances. Whether he has gored a son or a daughter, child, according to his judgment. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. It's not saying that that's what a person is worth. It's saying if you take someone, someone made an investment and you killed their investment so that person couldn't work their debt off, You need to pay that person what you took from them. And you also die because of the servant. So it's sort of a double penalty. What's God doing here? He's saying, this is what violence looks like, and here's how I view it. It's not all the same, but it's very serious. There's a justice here that we don't like sometimes, and God's saying, you're wrong when you don't like it. If you don't think someone should be put to death for these things, you're wrong. The death penalty is just because God said it was. He said it is just to take a life for a life. Now, that's not popular, but that's Bible. And so what we say is if God said it, then it's true. We need to change whatever it is about ourselves so that we agree with it. We don't say... Someone ran into me in my car, totaled my car, and paralyzed me. I want them to be killed. Isn't that what we want? We want someone to pay more than what they gave to us. They hurt us. We want them to be hurt double. God says, no, that's not how it works. An eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. You pay what you took. You break a leg, you pay for a leg. You take a life, you pay with a life. Our just our vengeance system wants more from people. We want punitive damages. We want to make it hurt more for them than it did for us. That's the vengeance in our hearts. And God says that's not godly. That's not right. So what is the purpose of this law? That's the justice of the law. What's the purpose? For two two areas. One for governments. Do you work in the government? Do you work in the legal system? Do you vote for judges? Do you vote for congressmen? Do you vote for lawmakers? How do you decide who to vote for? What standard do you hold lawmakers to? That's a big question, isn't it? I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. 
because the Bible doesn't tell you who to vote for. But I'm going to tell you that you can use this as a way to see what God thinks about violence. So what should a government do? God created this government here, the Israel, Israel's government, to create a healthy community, to help life flourish, like in the garden, by means of legal instruction. You know when you make a law, you teach people? You teach people whether they keep or break the law. By having the law, you teach them. Think back in the old days. It was wrong. If you watch the show Parks and Rec, makes fun of old laws. It's illegal for a woman to be out on the Sunday at noon. What's that tell you about the community? They don't like women. Whether they enforce the law or not, the law says something about it. So what, is the, what are these laws telling us? God wants a healthy community where people are taught by the law. Taught what? That there's dignity and value in every person. Babies, slaves, servants, adults, men, women. Anytime violence is perpetrated against another person, you're supposed to view it poorly. If you're voting for a politician who doesn't do that, that's unjust. If you vote for a politician who encourages violence, allows violence, condones violence, that's wrong. Amen. They should not be running our government. These laws teach us that we should value everyone, regardless of their status, their age. Just because your parents are old doesn't mean you get to dismiss them. Just because your baby's not born yet doesn't mean you get to dismiss them. Just because you don't like people, just you don't get to dismiss anyone. You value everyone, young, old, men, women, lower class, upper class. That's what the law teaches us. It teaches us to protect the vulnerable. It's saying babies are so vulnerable that if you're in a legitimate fight and you see one approaching, just run away. Just run away because if you do anything to hurt that baby, it's on you. Why? Because babies are vulnerable. Slaves are vulnerable. Women are vulnerable. Everyone's vulnerable to some degree, and a government should teach its people by its laws that we protect the vulnerable. Amen. That's why abortion laws are so evil. Because they teach people not to protect the vulnerable. And you can apply that to all classes of people that our government comes in contact with who are vulnerable. Do our laws teach us to value them or not? Vote for politicians who want laws that teach the value and dignity of people. It also restrains evil by punishment. Romans chapter 13 says, They carry not the sword in vain. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. Afraid of what? What this passage lines out. It doesn't change anybody's heart. It doesn't create virtue. It just punishes bad behavior. And punishment works. How do we know it works? Because God told us to do it. Sometimes it's hard to know what things work in this world. Sometimes you have to wait 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But God tells us it's good, so you should do it. It's fair and consistent. Eye for eye, not two eyes for one eye. When we think about immigration laws, do we think about that? Do we think about when someone breaks the law that they get a just punishment for that law that they broke? This is not telling you how to view immigration, except to say there's a fair penalty for certain laws. If there's penalties being passed that are too much, that's wrong, that's unjust. So I'll, I'll do it in an oblique way. If you run a stop sign, that's breaking the law, isn't it? If your kids are in the back seat, should the police take them out of your car? No, they should not. You broke the law and you should pay. 
but you should not pay with your life or your kids. So think about that. Justice must be fair and consistent. It applies to everybody all the time in the same way. And it says an eye for an eye, a burn for a burn, a stripe for a stripe, run a stop sign, pay a fine, break into a house, go to jail, things like that. So that's a relevant question. Should you support the death penalty in America? It's a tough question, isn't it? Because on the one hand, the Bible gives you the death penalty principle. It says it's just to take a life for a life. On the other hand, how do you know they took the life? It's one thing to live in a small community where you know everybody. It's another thing to live in a country of 300 million. The theory of the death penalty is just, but the practice isn't always just. Sometimes people are accused falsely. Sometimes the justice system is rigged. Sometimes people are targeted for other reasons. So be careful about saying, well, the Bible says the death penalty is okay, so I'm for it in America. Justice looks different in different places because of the mitigating factors. I'm not saying whether we should be for or against the death penalty in America, but you should definitely be against miscarriages of justice. Amen. And I'm sure there's a Netflix special that shows you someone being falsely accused. Thankfully, they got the DNA before they killed them. That needs to be factored. It's not simply someone's got to pay with their life, but justice needs to be served. Restraining evil by warning of the consequences of a lack of care for your neighbors. You didn't mean to kill them. doesn't matter. You'll be punished. You didn't know that the ox was going to gore them. You're still going to be punished. It's a warning. The second use of the law, the first use of the law is to restrain evil men. They're still evil men but they don't want to be punished, so they're restrained. So that's the purpose of a government, is to restrain evil men. That's what our law should do. But more individualistically, what does it mean for us? It prevents personal vengeance. Thou shalt not kill means you don't get to kill people. God's ministers get to kill people. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard what is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. But what about justice? What about payment? Not for you to take. You don't get to be a vigilante. Amen. Amen. The government has a role. And as much as we love the concept of vigilante, the Bible doesn't like it. Jesus says if someone hurts you, you don't take it from them. You turn the other cheek. And if that means justice is not carried out, so be it. Better than the alternative, which is where every person seeks out their own justice. This, the individual serves the people, and the government serves the individual. Teaches the value of God's image. Why can't you kill people? Why shouldn't you hurt people? They took something from you. you have, they have something you want. Why shouldn't your survival be, be the most important thing? What's the value of a human life, and why is it valuable? Where do human rights come from? Does evolution teach you human rights? No. Does natural law teach you human rights? No. Human rights come from this alone. God made man in his image. Try to find human rights before Christianity. Try to find it in the Enlightenment. Try to find it in Eastern religions. Human rights comes from Christianity, which is don't take what's owed to you, 
but value other people. We are told to value human life. Gregory of Nyssa wrote this in the third century. Tell me, what price do you pay to acquire a person? What is the equivalent in goods for the cost of human nature? How much, in terms of money, is the value of intelligence? What price did you pay in obols, which is a kind of money, for the image of God? For how many staters did you buy human nature made by God? For one who has known human nature said that not even the whole world is a sufficient price for a just payment for the soul of a man. If you owned every single thing in the whole world, one person is worth more than that. That's why the only payment sufficient for a life is another life. You can't pay enough money to buy someone's life. He was speaking against slavery, but it applies to all sorts of violence, all sorts of life-taking. We are made in the image of God, and God is saying here that every person, man, woman, child, unborn baby, elderly person, slave, free, they're all made in God's image. And if you attack that, you attack God. But what it's teaching here is not just punish bad behavior. It's teaching you to love, to cultivate love in your heart. If you ever watch Lord of the Rings, there's a little character called Gollum. He's evil, nasty, murderer. He's a killer. He deserves to die. And one of the characters, Frodo, sees him, and he says, I wish that Bilbo had killed him. He deserves it. Gandalf, who's wise, says, deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there's a chance of it. What Gandalf is saying is you don't just want to kill him, you hate him. Your heart is being corrupted. He's saying, do you know everything? Are you here to deal out death and judgment? No. Don't let your heart be corrupted by hate towards evil people who you feel justified to hate. You see, this law is taught to make you love people. It's given to shape your heart. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Martin Luther King Jr. said, nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a man, but you refuse to hate him. God's not just saying punish bad people. He's saying love people. The law is not just to hurt it's to create love for your enemies. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he was talking about this passage. God cares about the shape of your heart, not just the shape of society. If you hate your brother, if you hate your neighbor, if you hate the immigrant, if you hate the politician, you might as well kill him. You've corrupted your soul, and you'll corrupt society. And what happens when you corrupt society? God says you deserve death. And that's where we stand. Guilty. Guilty not just of violence, but of hate. Amen. The source of all violence, hate. Amen. 
And you notice that it just stops right there, doesn't it? It just says, don't be bad. So Jesus says, let me explain to you how bad you are. And then let me fix it for you. You see, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The law just tells you how bad you are, but Christ says, I'll fix it for you. I'll take the law and fulfill it. First, I'll receive the necessary justice. You know why God had to, why Jesus had to die? Because it says right here that he had to die. He took our sins, he took our guilt, and he became a murderer, he became a hater, a hateful person. And what happens to those people? God says, you must kill them. You must kill them. So Jesus, if he wants to take our place, he must die for God to be just. You see, to God to say, I'll forgive you but not make anybody pay, is like someone killing your child and the judge saying, that's all right, just forgive them and let them go. We know that's wrong. How long would that go off? Not my car, I don't think. Someone's doing violence to your car out there. You might want to get them. It'll just be background noise. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God, the justice, the fairness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. How is that possible? The law is just. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption. Wait, you see the contrast? He's saying... It seems like he's saying, you've all broken the law, but no one's going to pay for it. You're all freely justified. You're all freely forgiven. By his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, by his death, because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes. See, you're guilty of this. And God says, I'll forgive you because I killed Jesus. That's justice. Forgiving us without killing someone is not just. But we don't want to die. So God says, okay, I'll kill Jesus. But you see, God always wanted to create a community where people weren't subject to violence. And he's doing that in this church right here. God is creating a community right here in this church where people don't hurt each other. It hasn't happened yet, but God's working towards it. John 13 says, So then he washed their feet, taking his garments, and sat down again, and said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You know what you don't do when you love someone? You don't hurt them. You bend down and you wash their feet. Is that what we're doing? No, it's not. But that's what we're supposed to be doing. And in this community, Christ can create it. You find the perpetrator? You can help her. Yeah. Ben's like, we just preached about helping people. Now I've got to go do it. <laughs> you see how loving one another, God's created a new community in the church. We don't kill each other. We don't hurt each other. The law couldn't do it, but the church can. Galatians 3.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The old law said love everybody. We're still supposed to love everybody. But then we're supposed to love Christians more than that. So being a Christian doesn't mean that you don't have to do as much. It means now you want to do more. 
You loved everybody like you were supposed to. You love your neighbor, no matter what they look like. But then you see Christ's people in his church, and you say, I'm going to do more for them. I'm going to love them more than even the law required. Do you love your lost friends more than you love your church friends? Do you serve your lost family more than you serve your church? Do you spend more time at your work than you do for the church? You're not fulfilling the law of Christ. That's what the church is supposed to do, create this new community. But as we know, violence still happens. Church members still die. Friends still die. Christians still die. And sometimes Christians kill people. What does God say about that? He says, I'm not done creating yet. I'm not done creating. Christ is creating a violence-free society. Now in our church, but one day in the new city. See, there's a new community coming. Revelation 21 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. There shall be no more murder. There should be no more assaults, no more children molested, no more identities stolen, no more parents rejected, no more miscarriages, nothing. Because God said, I fixed it. When I died on the cross, I paid for it, and now I'm going to bring it. And we as Christians are just waiting. Every school shooting, every suffering makes us look forward more to that new city, there should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne, the king, the government, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Why did he need to write that down? Because you watched the news this morning, didn't you? And the news said the opposite of that. So you need someone to tell you that this is going to happen, that violence is going to be gone one day. And you're not going to see it till it happens. But you can trust God. You can trust he who is true and faithful. You can trust Christ because he died for you, because he suffered violence for you, so that you won't have to suffer violence one day. That should cause you to love your neighbor. Not the law, not the punishment, but the love. You shall know them by their love one towards another. We love him because he first loved us. If there's no love, there's no Christianity. If there's violence, Christ is left. Let's be a church that loves each other because we love Christ. Let's pray.